0: Let's pray as we come and look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for the Bible. We thank you that it is the best book to read. Thank you that the best friend we can have is the Lord Jesus Christ, and to trust him. And as you read about this letter in Sardis that was clearly struggling uh, to do that, Father, please may we learn these sobering lessons about what it means to trust you. Father, please would you help us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you are a certain of a certain age, uh, you will know the name George Best. George Best was, uh, and I asked Gerard about this over uh, coffee, and he began to wax lyrical about George Best. George Best was a fantastic footballer. Okay, he played for Manchester United, um, and he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, um, yeah, he was brilliant. and, he did, and if he, I guess you look up George Best on YouTube, you can probably see some of the great things he did. But after a while, he took up drinking, he took up the wildlife, he didn't train anymore, and sadly his life basically began to fall apart, and he died quite young, quite recently, but still relatively young. Um, he basically lived on his reputation for many years. When he was a young man and when he was training, he was brilliant. But sadly, as time went on. As I say, he took on the sort of 60s lifestyle and drink and wine, women, and song. And he began to live on his reputation. You know, he'd go out and the drinks on the night and then he'd come and play the next day. And it began to show, you know, for a while you'd keep picking him. And I remember clubs used to keep signing him in the hope that somehow he'd recapture his glory days. But it never quite worked out. He rested on his laurels. He had this great reputation of being a great footballer. But sadly, as time went on, he would rest on his laurels, and he would not. um, He wasn't a great footballer. And I guess what we're looking at this morning is the Christian equivalent of that. People who are resting on their laurels, who have a reputation for being a great Christian, but actually aren't. Uh, I did have a map, but my PowerPoint doesn't seem to be working this morning. We're coming to the fifth church. We've been up the... um, The West Coast of Turkey. We've moved inland and now we're coming down a bit inland. And we come to this place uh, called Sardis. And we read about it in chapter 3 and verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. You know, if you had a free Sunday and you were in Sardis, you would go to the church because it had a reputation for being alive. Now, we're not told why it had a reputation. We don't know whether it was the music and they would just see a fantastic music and the muses were going and they were really going for it. Uh, we don't know if the, you know, the preacher told fantastic and brilliant and witty stories and knew all the best illustrations or whether they just had lots of you know, brilliant programs. They just seemed to be really involved in the community. We don't know what it was. But certainly... Um, Maybe it was just the sheer number of people they had, or maybe the sheer number of young people they had. But, you know, you came away from the church in in Sardis and thought, wow. Maybe you went home to your church the next week and thought, well, if only our church could be a bit more like the church in Sardis. That would be great. First kids' question. What did people think about the church in Sardis? What did people think about the church in Sardis? But... And it is a very, very big but. What does Jesus say about them? What does he say? End of verse 1. You are dead. Okay? You have a reputation. You have a name for being alive. Lots of people think you're absolutely fantastic. But you are dead. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Here's a church with a reputation. Lots of people think, wow, Sardis, great church. Jesus says, you are dead. I wonder what it would have felt like to have been in Sardis when this letter reached them and they read it out. Would they have been embarrassed? Would they have been angry? Would they have been very defensive? Well, we don't know. But of course, we're learning that these letters are not just for their original heroes. They're not just for Sardis. They're not just for Pergamum, all these places. Because in verse 6, we read these verses, and all the letters have these verses. Verse 6, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. So we're all meant to listen to this letter, Silas, to see if this is true of us as well. And I don't know about you, as you read this question. Here is a church that has a reputation for being alive, but God thinks he's dead. Well, how does that happen? How can a church have a reputation of being alive and yet be dead? And could that be true of us? Are we guilty of the same thing? You know, we probably think we're alive. Well, what does God actually think? And if we are dead, what can we do about it? How do we change that situation? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Well, the city of Sardis, I did have a nice picture, but the thing stopped working. So um, it, too, actually had a reputation. It had been about three or 400 years, 500 years before this letter. It had a great reputation. It was a great place, but it had been invaded a couple of times. And it wasn't really quite the place it had been. And maybe Jesus playing on that, uh, that reality. And as ever with these letters, we've uh, been looking at them. They begin with words about the Jesus who speaks. So let's look at verse 1. And, and uh, Sorry, that was my map, but it hasn't come up. That was my map, but that was my nice picture of Sardis. That's my first thing. Jesus, his power and authority over the churches. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus, the one who holds... and there's some debate about the seven spirits. Is that sort of a picture of... Well, the footnote talks about the sevenfold spirits, that the idea of the Holy Spirit has, you know, just control and fully orbed ability in the spiritual world. Uh, the, but the point here is that Jesus holds them. Jesus is in control. It's Jesus who sends out his spirit. And the seven stars... Are tied in with the angels, they are the, tied in with the churches. Jesus holds, has power of the Spirit, has power of the churches. We thought about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is the one who has power over the churches. We like to think of it, maybe Grace Church once said, it's my church. Well, no, it's Jesus' church. He is the one who controls it. He is the one who reigns over it. I guess and again and again, we've been reminded of the reality and the truth, that it is God who reigns, it is Jesus who reigns. He is the one we have to listen to. We can't just say, oh, that's very interesting. Oh, Jesus, you say that. I want to say something else. No, Jesus is the one who owns it. I don't hold this church in my hand. We don't hold this church in our hands. Jesus does. He is the one who is in control. And we find something else about him in verse 1 as well. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He is the one who knows everything about us. A scary thought. Jesus' the one who knows everything about us. So he knows our deeds. He knows our thoughts behind our deeds. He knows our motivations. He knows our desires. He knows what we're thinking and doing when we're alone, when nobody else is there. When we're by ourselves, when nobody's watching us. I know your works, he says. And then we come to the criticism. The other letters we've seen, there is a, uh, a commendation. But there isn't a commendation in this letter. Well, a commendation was coming from all the people who were visiting Sardis. Hey, Sardis, you're a great church. What a reputation. You're a great church. But from God, there is no commendation. We go straight to the criticism. And we've seen the criticism, you are dead. A second kid's question. What does Jesus say about the church in Sardis? What does Jesus say about the church in Sardis? So how can it be that a church that uh, has a reputation for being alive is actually dead? What is going on? How did that happen? I think verse 2 helps us here. Let's look at verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I think this is the essence and the heart of the problem. This is the crux of the problem. It's very easy for us to live our lives before other people. It's very easy for us to live our lives just worried about what everyone else thinks about us. I guess you guys who started new schools this week must have been intensely aware of that. You were worried, what are the other people here thinking about me? Are they going to be nice to me? But the danger could be that we do that to such an extreme that we actually forget about God. And I say it's a problem that actually runs through the whole way through the Bible. So if you go back to that first family, Cain and Abel. Now, outwardly, they both pitched up with their sacrifices. If you've been watching, you thought that was both very impressive. They've turned up with the sacrifices. But we're told that there's something very different going on in Abel's heart than in Cain's. Abel's heart is out of faith. He wants to please God. And so it actually gives the uh, fat portions, the first fruits. Of his flock, Cain. He's just giving a sacrifice because that's the dumb thing. There's no idea it comes out of faith. There's no idea that he has a relationship with God. It doesn't seem he really cares. We're very easy for us to get caught up in the externals. Cain would have looked in many ways just as impressive as Abel to us, but something very different going on in his heart. Or the other famous example, Samuel is sent to David's family when Saul has been rejected as king. Saul has been rejected as king, God says, I need a new king, go to this family. And he goes to the family and he sees the eldest son, Eliab, and he just looks really great. And Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed, surely the Lord's king stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his sight, for I have rejected him. And then the really important bit... The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, the outside. He looked big, he looked impressive. But the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord can see what is going on inside us. The Lord looks at the heart. So that's why I asked Philippe to read that passage from uh, Matthew's Gospel. Jesus warns his followers about their giving and their praying. It's very easy to give and to pray in a way that shows off. You get these foundations that you know you have a name of a you know a, a name and the reason there's this foundation is because this person has given all this money to create the foundation, but they've put their name on it, so you always know this foundation, or you offer to you know give money, and then your name will be on a plaque or something. You know, I want people to know I've given. Or praying, I and mean, he uses, I think this picture did work. Yes, a picture that worked. Yeah, here's a picture of a person, he's praying out in the open. Jesus says, but look, he's got all these people are watching and saying, gosh, oh, you really impressive that this man's praying. But is he really praying or is he showing off? Uh, Jesus came to the temple. And uh, he says, you know, the temple, hugely impressive building, all these great rituals, all these priests in their, you know, in their garb. It would look very, very impressive, but Jesus compares it to a fig tree that doesn't have any figs on it. There's lots of leaves, there's lots of greenery, it looks very impressive, but Jesus says, it is dead, it has no fruit, it is empty before God. It is very easy to go for the externals, to look, at maybe come to a church and say, gosh, this looks really impressive, the singing is good, the music's good, they look really fervent, you know, it looks impressive. But what is actually going on in the hearts of the people? And so the challenge to us, I think, as we come to this letter, and we, you know, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The question is not, are we here? The question is not, are we singing But the question is: Are we really engaging with God, or are we just showing off to each other? And I ask myself that question as well. What is going on? Prayer. Take prayer. It's very easy. Costas comes up to prayer. We all know the routine. We drop our heads. Maybe we bring up our hands. But are we really praying? Are we actually engaging with God? Are we doing business with God? We can look like we're listening. You will look like you're listening. But are we thinking, this is God's word, how is it going to change my week? And what's going on when no one else is watching when we're away from church? You know. I'm the, I guess prayer is a great test of this. Are we praying? When nobody else is there, when nobody else is watching, you know, do we pray? Do we make time to that picture of going into our room quietly by ourselves and praying? Is that happening? Um, what about our fight against sin? Are we... Fighting against sin, or are we just thinking, well, it doesn't really matter. Nobody's watching, I'll be okay. And our giving, again, maybe that's a good test. Are we giving? Maybe we see our giving. Is it happening? That's between us and God. So I guess the question is, is that phrase, isn't it? I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now, of course, all our deeds are unfinished, even if we're dedicated Christians. We know we're not perfect. But I think the point he's making is, are you living before God... Are you more interested in your reputation with other people? Is there any real engagement with him? Is there real seeking God's face? Is there any real confession of our sin and seeking his forgiveness? Is there any real fight against our sin in our lives? Or are we just thinking, it doesn't matter, I'll come to church, I'll be acceptable, I'm here. People tick the box, yes, sir. David's here, that's fine. I think it's very dangerous, I think, as I say, it's a problem that runs the whole way through the Bible. I think, you uh, yeah, we just, we're very good at showing off. We're very good at having a good reputation. But what is going on in our hearts? Well, what's the correction? What do we do if we've fallen asleep? How do we uh, go about the correction? Um, let's give it up to Simon. You have to press it. Well, Hannah, thank you. That was another picture, okay, the correction, remember and repent, Verse three, remember therefore, what you have received and heard, and hold fast, hold it fast and repent. The remedy is very simple it is to go back to what we have received, remember what we have received and heard, and hold it fast and repent. I guess it 's good to say a creed today because that reminds us of the heart of what we believe. I believe in one God, the Father almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Remember that, that there is the God. Uh, There is the God who is the almighty God, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. The God who has made everything that we can see. The God who has made us. The one who is really there, upholding and sustaining the universe. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. He's always been there, the Son. God from God, he really is God. Light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, being one substance with the Father. He's not some special human being. He is the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who came for us and for our salvation. There's no salvation. We need salvation. God is angry with our sin. We need his forgiveness because of our rebellion against God. Again and again, the Bible says, we just need to keep remembering these things. It's really important that we keep remembering this stuff. It's very easy for it just to drift away. We can just turn up to church and just go through the motions. remember, remember. Remember. <clears throat> Uh, What does Jesus want the church to do? Third kid's question. What does Jesus want the church to do? Remember all this. Take it as truth. Take it as reality. And by this power of the Spirit, live it out. And that's why I think the scriptures have to be the center of our lives. This gospel, the scriptures that remind us of God and what he's like, have to be absolutely central to our lives. The church. Our lives as individuals, our lives as families, the Bible has to be central. You've got to keep remembering, you've got to keep coming back to it. And repent, keep turning back to the gospel that is there, keep holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Because he gives us a sabre warning. If you do not wake up, verse 3, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what time I will come to you. It's an image the Bible uses, again and again, again, the idea of a thief who doesn't tell you, you doesn't send you a text message to say, "By the way, I'm going to come tonight at three o'clock in the morning." He doesn't do that. He comes when you least expect it, and he comes and uh, takes stuff and leaves your house in a mess. Jesus warns us that he will come like that. his judgment will come when we least expect it. And I think one of the symptoms of falling asleep is we begin to forget about God's judgment. I think it's one of the areas where you can tell whether you've fallen asleep is because we forget, we begin to forget about God's judgment. We begin to live as if Jesus isn't really going to come back We've been, oh, he hasn't come back in 2,000 years. You know, he's not really there. He's not really going to come back. And we just, again, just begin to go through the Christian motions. Whereas a living Christian knows that he can come back any time. He can come back this afternoon. He can come back in the next five minutes. We have to be ready for that. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. The implication is that the others have that as we forget about God's judgment, we just begin just to go back into the world. We just begin to go to do what the world around us wants. Uh, I think we're on to our fourth kids' question. What does Jesus say he will come like? What does Jesus say he will come like? And then we come to the commendation. I think all the commendations are wonderful. someone's I think this one's... I guess each week I think, gosh, that's fantastic. Okay, what, is the, what are the commendation here? Yeah, you have a few people in Sardis who have not saw their clothes. They will walk with me, and well, that's brilliance. They'll walk with Jesus, dressed in white, for they are worthy. Again, we're told elsewhere in Revelation how did their clothes become white? Because they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's a bizarre image that you take dirty clothes, you wash them in blood, and they come out white. But that is what the Bible is saying, because it's symbolism. We come, we take our dirty clothes, tainted by our sin, and we wash them in Jesus' blood, and we come out white. We're completely forgiven. Dazzling white, beautiful white clothes, because of what Jesus has done for us. Our names will not be taken out of the book of life. But will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels imagine the scene it's very hard to imagine that we're going to be there on that last day before the throne of God before the angels in their thousands and millions and millions before the throne of God we're going to be aware of our sin we're going to know that we deserve to spend eternity in hell under God's judgment but at that moment Jesus comes and says this one is mine this one has washed his blood. So washed his clothes in my blood. This one is part of our family. This one is going to spend eternity with us in glory. What an amazing moment that will be. And Jesus says, Take hold of that. That is what it means. It's worth turning back it's worth giving up our human reputations for that moment well that moment then will then of course go on to an eternity with God in glory what a moment that will be Jesus will say this one is mine I acknowledge that he is mine he is ours and we will spend eternity with him final kids question. What will Jesus say about believers before the Father? What will Jesus say about believers before the Father? So the question this morning is really very simple. Have you fallen asleep? I have to ask this question. Have I fallen asleep? Have we become so worried about what other people think about us by the world around us that actually we've really fundamentally forgotten about the importance of actually having a relationship with God? We've forgotten the important question. is not what the world thinks about me, not what my schoolmates think about me, not what my workmates think about me, not what other people at church think about me. The key question is, what does God think about me? Am I in relationship with him? Have I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I day by day praying, my day by day confessing my sins and taking hold of the gospel again? Jesus says to us, wake up. I am coming as a thief. I will come when you don't expect it. Be ready. And so he says, watch out, remember and repent, says Jesus, take hold of the gospel, take hold of that forgiveness, come again. What one of the things we can come and wash our clothes in the blood of the Lamb so they come out white so that we can be forgiven. And so we can look forward to that extraordinary moment when I say we're standing before the throne of God and Jesus says, this one is mine. This one is going to spend eternity with us, not because of anything they've done, but because they've trusted in Christ and they've had their clothes washed in the blood of the Lamb. We need to wake up. There's a question there for you to discuss over coffee. Where do you think we are most in danger of falling asleep? And uh, how does this passage help us practically? Well, let's pray together as we come Heavenly Father, we want to praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and this great plan of salvation. We thank you that your eternal Son came into the world to save sinners. We praise you that he is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. That he is Lord over the church. Father, we thank you for these letters written written by him to these churches and yet so relevant to us today. We thank you for this letter to the church in Sardis. Father, we know that it's very easy to be more worried about what other people think about us rather than what you think about us. Father, we pray that you would forgive us when we pretend that we're alive. We want to just show people around us that we're alive. We just want a good reputation. Father, forgive us when we pretend to engage with you. Help us to wake up. Help us to remember who you are, that you are the great reality You are the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, the true and living God. We thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be washed, we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled, we can be adopted into your family. Father, wake us up, help us again to remember, to take hold, to hear, to repent. Help us to be victorious in the language. To take our garments, to be washed in Christ's blood that our names will be permanently in the book of life and we look forward with confidence that great day when the Lord Jesus returns and he will acknowledge us before the Father and the holy angels. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.